Salut et bienvenue. Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 17. The Café Culture. Paris is so many things, but for me, if I've been away for a while, what I most think of, if it comes to mind, is that expansive pavement, the red awnings, the little tables, the waiters, the café culture. That Parisian institution that somehow just isn't the same anywhere else. The 19th century American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson said that what he liked most about Paris was that it is, quote, a city of cafes and conversation. Indeed. Of course you go to look at things and visit places and buy books and little boxes of chocolate, but actually you go, I think, most of all, to just loiter in cafes and watch the world go by. And so it is that there's an episode here just on that very thing. I think the whole thing stems from it being a country that takes food and drink and time for friends and family and all those things that really matter very seriously indeed. Let's face it, France is a country where, even in the capital city, they wax lyrical about the best bread in town. In case you're wondering, that's Poilane, or so the French would tell me. I wouldn't presume to judge. It's also the country where, if you're really good at being a chef or a baker or a butcher, you may win the coveted Meilleur Ouvrier de France Award. Have a look next time you're passing. If you see a really good baker shop, for example, have a look and see if it's got the circular plaque outside with MOF on it, red, blue and white, of course, the MOF standing for Meilleur Best Ouvrier Workman de France of France. One of the very best in their particular trade. Awards which are fiercely contested, for which you have to pass really rigorous exams that take place every year but which, if you manage to win one, signify to the world in general that you are a really good, top-notch French, and that last is important, baker. Paris is also the city where every November an event called the Fête des Charcutiers takes place, the Festival of Butchers. No small event, it's been running for over 200 years. It takes place in the Saint-Eustache Church in Léal, which of course used to be the centre of all things wonderful when it came to buying food in French markets. It's really quite an event. There's a procession, people holding plateau de cochonnaille, so plateaus of things made from pig, if you like, pork products. It's not, of course, any old body who gets to carry one of these plateaux. You have to be a compagnon de Saint-Antoine, a fully paid-up member of the St. Anthony Society. Medals are given out, Tributes are given to any members who've died since the previous year. There's a prayer at the end, the prière au bon Dieu du pâté en croûte. It might be slightly facetious to say that the British equivalent would probably be the prayer for the good of the sausage roll, and I'm sure that's not exactly what it means, but it's of that flavour. And the whole thing ends with a properly held, fully celebrated, much enjoyed candlelit meal. Of course it does. This is Paris. Paris might be a cosmopolitan city, but it's still a place where everybody knows what to eat when, what's in season, and when it will be at its absolute best. It's a well-known saying, for example, that you should eat peas with the rich and cherries with the poor, which means that everybody knows that peas are best in early season, when they first start to be available, and so they're going to be expensive. That's why you eat them with the rich. You catch them early when they're at their best, and everybody knows too that cherries are at their best in late season, by which time they're very plentiful and quite cheap. Hence, you're eating them with the poor. If you're French, that's just common sense. I noticed a tiny little one-liner in a book by Patricia Wells about French cooking. 
more of that later. But for the moment, let me just tell you that she said a taxi driver who was taking her to the airport gave her his tips on cooking mussels. His wife, he said, made the best mussels in the world. And what you need to know, if you want to come anywhere near her, is that it's the tiniest ones which have the best flavour. Again, so French, everybody has a view on what tastes best and how to prepare it. I noticed when I was reading George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London, a book, if you don't know it, in which he spends some months working in the kitchens of various Parisian restaurants and cafes, and his boss is opening up a new restaurant, and he explains to us that the man knows that he's going to succeed when the first Frenchman who comes to eat there returns a day or two later with two other Frenchmen. As Orwell points out, quote, the surest sign of a bad restaurant is to be frequented only by foreigners. Indeed, the French know where the best food is, they'll go there, and if you want to find it, you should follow them. A tip, I think, which still holds good today. So it goes without saying that in a country which takes all these things so seriously, the cafes are going to be top-notch. They were roundly praised by Stella Duffy in the following words, quote, The linen, the glass, the crockery. The waiters with their insistence on pouring and placing and setting and getting it all right. Pattern, form, nothing deviating, nothing turning away, nothing new. I think that last is important. They do seem to have been there forever and you can sort of feel confident that they will be there forever. The tables, the tablecloths, the waiters properly dressed. They're not students on a gap year. They're career waiters. And there they are in black trousers, possibly a waistcoat, certainly a properly ironed white shirt. As always, doing everything, as the French call it, comme il faut, just as it ought to be done. Stephen Clark, author of Paris Revealed, has a lot of time for Parisian waiters, admiring their professionalism and the fact that they know what they're doing. This is how he puts it. They're divided into ranks like an orchestra. At the bottom of the prestigious heap, you have the guys in long white aprons and waistcoats. These are the violinists who carry the weight of the melody, and they sway between the tables, holding giant trays of food at shoulder level. Above them are the people in black suits and bow ties, soloists who take orders and banter with the customers, and conducting the whole symphony are the maitre d'ise in their shiny suits, chic and commanding, forever flitting about, checking that everyone is getting what they came for. So how and when did it all start? It's said that the very first café in Paris opened in 1686. Its owner was a Sicilian who rejoiced in the name of Francesco Procopio dei Cotelli, which he quite wisely shortened to the name of his café as Le Procop. And it all took off from there. Perhaps it was the 19th century that was the heyday of the Parisian café. The opening of those large establishments with chandeliers hanging from the ceilings along all the Grand Boulevard. There's very fancy, newly widened roads around the opera and the Place de la République, a place where painters and writers went, and people in the newly leisured classes, to see, to be seen, to enjoy. As well as these rather plush establishments, at the same time, there were a whole range of cafés opening up in Montmartre of a slightly less elegant nature, smaller, grubbier, frequented by more people who drank a bit too much, places where you could buy absinthe, for example. And both of these types of establishment are the precursors of the cafes we know today. Here's a description by the writer Angela Mason in her book Café Society. The everyday corner café, or café du coin, now so emblematic of Paris, 
began to flourish in the city around the turn of the century, when hardy rural types from the Auvergne in central France began to set up shop in the capital, sell coal and charcoal for heating and cooking. They offered wine and strong drink to their customers, along with other kinds of fuel, thus providing meeting places for ordinary Parisians who weren't interested in gilt or bohemian pursuits. The descendants of these establishments are everywhere in Paris today, scruffy, generic places that supply such basic components of Parisian life as jolts of thick black café serré, darkly aromatic French cigarettes, stamps, lottery tickets, telephones, and lavatories of dubious sanitation. By contrast, here's a description of one of the higher-end cafés from the 19th century, which comes from Rupert Christensen's book, City of Light. The Boulevard des Italiens was the favoured resort of the smart and the cool. In the afternoon, fashionable folk foregathered at Tortoni, which sold fabulous ice cream or a glass of Madeira with patisserie. After the theatre or opera, everyone moved to the Café Anglais, which was open all night. And he goes on to explain how these were very masculine places. Men met and talked and socialised. Ladies came too, but they had to be accompanied, for fear that if they were alone... Their safety could hardly be guaranteed. I've mentioned before how, in the 1860s, Baron Haussmann oversaw the aggrandisement of Paris, the sweeping away of little streets, their replacement by grand boulevards, which had much wider pavements. And it was at that moment that cafes began to spill out onto the pavements, setting up their tables and little chairs so that people could sit and see and be seen, all very much part of the café-going experience. So then, for a rundown of some of the city's best-known cafés. Let's start with the Café Procope, which I mentioned a minute or two ago was the very first café in Paris, certainly the first to serve coffee, and believed also possibly to have been the first to serve sherbet. Its owner had chosen a site carefully. There was a bowling green nearby when it first opened, so that brought some customers in. But then, better still, a building went up, a theatre, soon to become known as the Comédie Française, one of the city's most popular theatres, and so it turned out that the café was very much in the right place for people to tip into when they came out of the theatre. Add to that the fact that it was popular with many of the right people. Two of its regular customers, for example, were Diderot and D'Alembert, the two philosophers and writers who combined to produce the first Encyclopédie, Encyclopedia. Lots of other well-known people frequented this café, Voltaire and Rousseau, for example, and then towards the end of the 18th century, it became popular with the revolutionaries. Danton drank there, as did lots of journalists. It's believed to be the place where the very first red bonnet were worn, the garment which later became a symbol of the revolution. In the early 19th century, it remained popular, albeit with a different clientele again. Writers this time, Georges Sand, for example, Balzac, Victor Hugo, Verlaine, all of them were there. And so, of course, it became very much talked about. It did eventually fall out of favour towards the end of the 19th century, overtaken by some of the other cafes I've mentioned. But it's been revived and it's there today, and it's listed in many a guidebook, so it should be easy enough to find. If you do go, you'll find that there are plaques on some of the chairs, claiming to say that this particular philosopher sat here and that writer sat there. I think there must surely be a little romantic exaggeration in that. But nevertheless, it does give a sense of history and a sense of occasion. Three of the city's other very well-known cafés are in fact all quite close together. That would be the Deux Magots, the Café Flore and the Brasserie Lip. 
I mentioned the first two in the episode on Montparnasse because they were haunts famously of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. But we really ought to go and visit the Brasserie Lip as well because it's an institution in the heart of Saint-Germain. And it's partly at least its situation which has made it so famous. It's up the road from the Parliament, the Assemblée Nationale, and from the Sorbonne and the École des Beaux-Arts. So it's no surprise to hear that it's always been at the core of Parisian intellectual life and cultural life and political life. It's sometimes referred to as an extra wing of the Parliament, as being a place where politicians can slip away and conduct the conversation more or less in private and in very convivial surroundings. We know that writers like André Gide and André Malraux and Proust himself frequented this café, and it's been known to host all sorts of well-known politicians. François Mitterrand, for a start, Emmanuel Macron, and there's a story often told about a day in September 1965 when the then-president, Charles de Gaulle, discovered that his Prime Minister, Georges Pompidou, and his Minister of Finance, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, both of whom, of course, went on to be president after him, he discovered that they'd been arguing and feuding, and this really didn't look good. He told them they should patch it up, and that they should do so publicly, because the newspapers were talking. President de Gaulle's advice was, quote, be seen having dinner together. Go to lip. Apparently this they duly did, and yes, it was reported in the papers the following day. There's a cheerful story told about the writer Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who was also a frequent customer here. You might know that he was also a pilot, and that at one point in the 1930s, he was feared lost. His plane had disappeared somewhere over the desert, days had passed, nothing had been heard of him, and the worst was feared. This news travelled round the Brasserie Lip, as indeed it travelled round Paris and France generally, until, a few days later, he himself walked through the doors and into the café. He was roundly cheered, apparently, by everybody there, and the owner immediately got the champagne out and poured it all, completely free to everybody, until 3am, in celebration. Another institution that you can visit today, a classic brasserie, lots of mirrors on the wall, leather benches, very nicely pressed white linen tablecloths, pristine cutlery, fine glassware, staffed apparently by waiters whose average length of time waiting there is 19 years, and who are paid not just for their waiting skills, but because they know everybody, or all the well-known people at least, who come in and out, and because they're absolute experts on the menu, and can tell you everything about every dish that is served. I expect they know a lot of details about which MPs like which dish, but I'm sure they're far too discreet to publish any of that. So, if you take yourself there, what you can expect is some very classic French cooking. I checked the menu on the website, and there were references to things like entrecote, confit de cuisse de canard, so duck thigh confit, top quality produce, hearty food, very well cooked, very French, sauces, cream, and proper French trimmings like potato puree and spinach and haricot vert. Another cafe with a very big reputation is down in Montparnasse, La Coupole. I think I mentioned that too in the episode on Montparnasse, it being a favourite haunt of Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. So let me just add here that that too is absolutely a Parisian institution. Stephen Clark in Paris Revealed tells us of a moment where there was talk about possibly closing it down and some of his French friends, in fact all of his French friends, were horrified by this idea and were saying things like, but where will I go for my birthday? And where will I eat oysters at Christmas? Again, easy to find, 
And if you eat there, you can enjoy the Art Deco murals painted by some artists of the day, including Matisse. They did the work in return for some free drinks. Lots of quite classic French cooking on offer there as well. Stephen Clark recommends the seafood. In fact, more precisely, he recommends that you enjoy, quote, a couple of dozen oysters and a bottle of champagne. There's a lot of seafood sold in Montparnasse, a tradition which apparently started because the trains out to Brittany and Normandy left from Montparnasse, and so it was the place to land oysters and prawns and whatnot off the night train. You'll see stalls on the street corners there, piled high with all sorts of seafood goodies, and at La Coupole, and indeed other restaurants and cafes nearby, it's not unusual to see somebody, or perhaps a couple, who've ordered a vast silver platter, often a thing that looks a bit like a fancy cake stand, so it's on a tall stem for extra drama, and it's a very large circle, piled high with ice, and then seafood displayed around it with lemon wedges, a real drama of a thing to order and to eat. If you're looking for somewhere else with a bit of history, then there's a cafe called Le Grand Vefour, V-E-F-O-U-R, in the Premier Arrondissement, right near the Palais Royal. That too dates from 1782, and was known at the time as the place where revolutionaries from various factions used to meet. I read about it in a French guidebook, and learnt one or two rather mysterious things. So, for example, we were told that it was here at Le Grand Vefour where Victor Hugo used to eat regularly, and that he always ordered exactly the same meal. But much as I would like to have known what it was, this wasn't explained. And also, even more mysteriously, it pronounced that it was here at Le Grand Vefour where, quote, Le peintre Fragonard, the painter Fragonard, mourut, died, en mangeant une glace, while eating an ice cream. Again, it's a little low on detail. We're not told whether this was happenstance or whether the ice cream was the cause of his demise. We're not told what flavour it was. We're not told any of the things that really you'd want to know. But suffice to say, it is a cafe which goes back a long way. And then my last recommendation, a very strange but rather glorious institution called Le Train Bleu, the Blue Train, which is a restaurant described in French in the guidebook I've just been talking about as Le Plus Luxueux des Buffets de Gare, the most luxurious station buffet, which perhaps in England wouldn't have quite the same ring to it, but in France is telling you that it's really something. And it's the station restaurant at the Gare de Lyon. It's billed as a luxury brasserie. It was opened in 1901 for, you've guessed it, the Exposition Universelle, the World Fair, opened in fact by the President of France, and such an institution that in the 1970s it became a historic monument. It's upstairs in the station itself, a phrase which doesn't convey the full glory of what beats you when you walk inside. Sumptuous rococo ceilings, sculptures, gilt, and perhaps most noticeable, walls covered in paintings of the cities served by the trains you can get from this station. You'll see the letters PLM as a motif, and that stands for Chemin de Fer Paris-Lyon-Méditerranée, the PLM being the railway company which served Paris, Lyon and the Mediterranean to the trains to the south. And it became quite the thing to do if you were going on an expensive holiday in the south to get off to a glorious start by dining out first at this restaurant. There were glorious paintings all over the walls of cities and places that you might pass on the railway. There's a lovely one of Mont Blanc, for example. And it too, being a Parisian institution, has been enjoyed by all kinds of very well-known and exclusive customers 
Coco Chanel, for example, and Brigitte Bardot are known to have eaten here. Jean Cocteau, the actor Jean Gabin. And the restaurant itself starred in a scene in Luc Besson's film, Nikita. I think if you're willing to spend a little bit more than usual on a meal, and you feel like a bit of luxury and perhaps a bit of high drama, go along and book yourself a table at the Petit Trembleur at the Gare de Lyon. I went on to some traveller websites and found one lovely quote from somebody who calls himself the man in seat 61. I think he's one of these travelling mystery diner types who goes to restaurants like this, has a meal and then writes about it. And this is his description of what happened when he ordered a rum bar in the Petit Train Bleu. Quote, This place is special and beautifully, authentically French. I ordered a rum for dessert, expecting the feeble confection served in most British restaurants. A bottle of fiendish Martinique rum materialised on my table. The waiter reappeared, carrying a generous sausage-shaped sponge roll. Whipping out a long knife, he deftly slashed the mark of sorrow into the sponge and flamboyantly emptied half the bottle of Martinique rum over the top. I'm putting that on my to-do list. And just a word before we finish about food. Where to start? I found an answer to this question in a book from the 1980s, I think, but still very relevant today, called The Paris Cookbook by Patricia Wells. It gave me lots of ways in. She'd lived in France for, I think, two decades, and the book is 12 chapters worth of recipes, which, as she puts it, were inspired by living in Paris, food shopping in Paris, eating there, and interviewing and shadowing some of the city's top chefs. There was a list of culinary terms, which I would have found quite useful. I learnt, for example, that if something is maraîchière, it means it's from a market garden, and if it's à la meunière, it's apparently in the style of the miller's wife, so I guess quite home cooking. I knew that wine had labels that told you what good quality it was. I learnt from this book that so do puits lentils. They, too, can be of appellation d'origine contrôlée, if they are high enough quality. There are 150 recipes in the book, so if you can't make it to Paris, you can at least cook a little something and pretend you're there. And many of the recipes were based on places in Paris. So, for example, after she'd been shopping in the Richard Lenoir market, she made a salad à la maraîchère, described otherwise as being courgette and tomato gratin. After a visit to the Boulevard Raspail market, one of Paris's biggest, she made cream of mushroom soup. And there's a little clutch of what she calls recette de base, something anybody aspiring to cook in the French fashion should be able to master. So, how to make vinaigrette, how to make sauce à la tomate. And then other of her recipes are inspired, so her take on famous recipes that she came across. I got the feeling she'd eaten the produce and then she'd gone back home and tried to reproduce the recipe. So we've got Guy Savoie's lentil ragout with black truffles. We've got a fish recipe, Sol Meunier, from the Dome Cafe. I'm guessing her take on same. And there's a chocolate mousse recipe based on something she ate at Maison du Chocolat. And then there's a cake recipe called the Apple Lady's Apple Cake, a recipe she claims was given to her by a stallholder in the farmer's market at Avenue de Bretagne, which she describes as being in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. So on every page there's just flavours of France, both literally and metaphorically. And right at the end of the book there are pages of addresses, places where you can buy the particular ingredients you'd need, or the equipment you might need to cook, say, a madeleine. And for every shop she mentions you get the phone number and the name of the nearest metro station, She's really encouraging you to actually go and do it and buy those things and eat it all. 
It's a little taste of Paris, it really is. So there we have it then, cafe culture in Paris. And just to end, words from an Oscar Hammerstein song, which remind us that the cafe culture really is absolutely central to the atmosphere of Paris. The last time I saw Paris, her heart was warm and gay. I heard the laughter of her heart in every street cafe. So that's it for this episode then. Just a quick signpost to next week, when I'm going to do a rather strangely titled episode called Buried in Paris, where I'm going to visit the Panthéon, that Parisian institution, which is a memorial to all things glorious in French history, and which is the burial place of many a famous French person, mainly French man, it has to be said, although they are just starting to put that right. And then, coupled with that, I'm going to talk about some of Paris's famous cemeteries, focusing particularly on the one which is actually the most visited cemetery in the whole world, and that's the historic and rather mystical Père Lachaise Cemetery. So that's for next time. For the moment, just thank you very much for listening. Merci and goodbye. Au revoir.